Good morning, everyone. Can we just thank our music team this morning for leading us to the throne? I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 65. We are rapidly approaching the end of our time here in the book of Isaiah. In fact, next Sunday is going to be our last sermon in this incredible book of prophecy. Uh, But whenever you're ending the long journeys like this one, it can be easy to become exasperated. Our family just returned from a couple of days' stay up in Maine, and the hardest part of every trip for us is the last couple of hours before you get home. It's that time of the trip when everybody is tired, and that's the most challenging part with the kiddos. They just want to be there. Everything that started off as a grand adventure has now become for them an exhausting slog. And I want to encourage you, do not come to the last two chapters in Isaiah with that kind of mentality, where you can just smell the end and you're just ready to be there. Because what you find in these last two chapters of Isaiah is incredible. It contains some of the most magnificent mysteries and magisterial promises of the entire Bible. And these chapters inform us about the conclusion, not just of Isaiah's book, but the conclusion of all things. And here we find the terminal point of the existence of every person who ever lived. Do you want to know how it all ends? You can find it at the end of Isaiah. These final two chapters stand as a joy-producing testament to those who trust in Christ, but they also stand to those who are in rebellion against the Lord as both a warning and an invitation to turn to the Savior. Please listen now as I read to you from the Scriptures. These are inspired by God Himself and given today for your edification. Isaiah 65, the Lord declares, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake, and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob, and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Achor a place for herds to lie down, for my people who have sought me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups mixed for wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down together to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. 
When I spoke, you did not listen, but you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death. But his servants he will call by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and hidden from my eyes." For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in the sound of In it, the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like in the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on his word this morning. Our Father God, we come before you acknowledging that this word spoken through your prophet long ago originated in your own heart. We pray, God, that today as we come before this passage, that we would humble ourselves beneath it, that we would be able by the Spirit of God to experience a transformation of life that can only come by submission to your will. We pray, God, that today, if there is anyone who is in open rebellion, that you would bring them to submission. If there is anyone here today that does not know you at all, that you would give them the awareness of who you are, but also draw them to yourself by your Spirit for salvation. And we pray, God, that if there is anyone who is in your kingdom but has fallen into temptation, who has been trapped in sin, that today you would give freedom and break the chains, break the bondage of, of sin that is so rampant in our world. And Lord, I pray that there would be freedom in Christ, that we might live for him rightly. We ask that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, This chapter that we've come to today is a beautifully woven passage. It is bringing together threads stated long ago in the book of Isaiah. All of those seemingly disparate storylines are now going to be coming together in these final two chapters to paint for us a picture of exactly what God wants to display for us in the book of Isaiah. 
In this chapter, we see the picture clearly displayed in two simple yet ultimately critical truths. And these two truths are going to frame our approach to the text. Don't think of them as an outline. Rather, I would ask that you consider these as two underlying realities. You are going to see these things continually bubble up through the text as we make our way through the chapter. The first is false repentance and false religion result in eternal misery. And secondly, true repentance and faith in Christ result in eternal joy. Those are things you are going to see continually in these verses. Let's first ensure that we're on the same page by defining our terms rightly. Today, our central focus is on the concept of repentance. What is that? The word literally means to change direction. It means if you are driving that way down Hempstead Turnpike, you are going to hit the brakes, you are going to turn around and go the opposite direction down Hempstead Turnpike. The word means changing your direction, but it represents more than just a change of action. It represents a holistic transformation of the entire person's life. It is the change of mind about sin that results in a change of action, a change of pursuit. You are no longer pursuing your way, but you are pursuing God and his way for your life. Last week, Bob Walderman did an excellent job of revealing what was occurring in the last chapter with the original audience of Isaiah's prophecies. If you missed that sermon, it would be well worth your time to go back and listen to it. But here's just a brief recap of what you need to know before stepping into chapter 65. Isaiah has been prophesying to a people in Israel that need to hear the word and need to repent. And if they do not, God promises he's going to send judgment to them, unlike anything that they have ever seen or imagined. But the people did not respond with repentance. Instead, they gave God empty lip service. They said all the right words, but their hearts were unchanged. I have to be honest, I gave Bob a very difficult assignment by asking him to preach that chapter because the conclusion of what takes place in that chapter doesn't come until our chapter today. The last words of Isaiah 64 end with a question mark. It says, will you restrain yourself forever? Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? That's how he ends the chapter. That's what you call a cliffhanger. Today we're going to see the conclusion. If the people had been truly repentant, God would have been unflinching in his mercy and he would have wrapped his loving arms around them. He would have absorbed them into his grace. We see that willingness in the opening lines of chapter 65. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a a rebellious people. Do you feel that righteous indignation in God's tone there? Do you see that he has done everything that he could possibly do in order to get their attention? Can you see the absurdity of the Israelites' question, asking God, are you actually going to do something, God? Why aren't you blessing us, they're asking. Why are you still promising to send an invasion against us, they are asking. Why don't you just get over it, God, they are asking. Well, God is telling them, look, I haven't moved. I have been in the same place this entire time. Arms wide open, ready for your repentance. But you have continued on in your rebellion. I'm the one who's put in the work. 
I'm the one who sought you out, God says. I'm the one who called to you that you could find me. I said, here I am, here I am. Well, how did God do that? How did God call to them, here I am, here I am? Well, the answer to that is very simple. He sent prophet after prophet to proclaim to them, thus says the Lord, yet their hearts remained unmoved. The guilt of the Israelites is really easy to see. I mean, you don't have to be a genius to see that they were rebellious. Like the sun in the sky, their sin is unmistakable and undeniable. Yet, when the call to repent came to them, they said a couple of words. They sounded nice. They prayed a couple of prayers. They sounded nice. They acted though their hearts were changed. It looked nice. But what were they doing? They hypocritically pretended to be righteous while knowing that their affections for their sin were left intact. And it's really easy for us to see that by looking back through the corridors of time and reading the book of Isaiah and seeing their foolishness. But as we make our way through this chapter, I want you to see the warnings and guard against following in their footsteps. Do not be like them. Let me ask, how many times have you read the Bible and your heart just remains unmoved? Perhaps you read about a particular sin that you regularly practice, and yet you close the book and you don't give it a second thought. Or how many sermons have you heard that prodded your pet sin, it pushed you to repent, yet you made a, a temporary move, you, you felt uncomfortable for a second, but then you leave the building and resume your life without repenting. What is the difference between that and listening to Isaiah talking on the street corner and then just walking away? God speaks through his word. He spoke through his prophet. He is speaking to you in the scriptures. When you come to it, are you unchanged? Repentance is not just a one-time act for the Christian. It is an ongoing process that God uses to gradually strip away all of the things that are out of line with God's own character. It's how he makes you more like Jesus. It's how he sanctifies you and makes you holy. The Israelites, well, they were not inwardly changed. Although they claimed to repent, here is God's analysis of their actions. He says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who do what? Who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens, making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. Has anyone ever provoked you to your face? I mean, has anyone ever just gotten up in your face and begun mocking you or calling you names or calling your mother names? Something that they are, what are they doing? Why are they doing something like that? Because they want you to throw the first punch usually. That's what they're doing. They get in your face and they they provoke you so that you will fight them. Notice that that is what God says they are doing. They're getting in my face and provoking me. They are asking me to take the first punch. He perceives that their daily lifestyles are a provocation of his anger. He describes this as something that was continual. He doesn't say, look, you did this one time and it made me angry. He says, this is something that you do constantly. Look, if somebody gets up in your face and then they back away, no harm, no foul, they back away. But what if they just keep coming and coming and coming, and no matter how far you back up, they continue to move forward towards you? God says that is the action of the Israelites. It was an unending parade of actions that amounted to spitting in God's face over and over and over again. 
And this is not intended to be an exhaustive list of their sins, but I do find it incredibly interesting which sins God highlights in this list. Of all the things he could have picked out, why does he select these things? He picks things like going into tombs or eating pork products. Well, these things violate the old covenant laws, things that bound the Jews, but that the Gentiles did all the time. Those were common practice for the people that were not Israelites. So why does God call out all of those things? Well, the answer is very simple. It comes to us in verse 5. He says, You who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are smoke in my nostril, a fire that burns all the day. There it is. Why does God pick up on those things, those particular sins? Because they are a thread of hypocrisy that Isaiah is picking up from earlier in the book, and now he is bringing it to a conclusion in this chapter where he says to the people, look, all of these things that you say about the Gentiles in order to keep them away from you, the things that you do to tell them you are unworthy of my presence, you still do the same exact things. You are hypocrites par excellence. You tell them you are unclean, yet you do exactly what the Gentiles do. Sometimes in the Bible, the concept of smoke in the nostrils is a depiction of anger. It's like that fire-breathing dragon with the anger coming out. Well, that is not what is happening in this passage. This is a different image that is being used. Here, when it speaks about smoke in his nostrils, it is not a representation of anger. Think of it this way. Have you ever been around a campfire? Maybe it's a cold night and you kind of keep scooching your chair closer, and you get a little closer because you're freezing, and you're kind of turning to make sure like each side gets warm, and you get closer and closer and closer, and then all of a sudden, you keep pouring more wood on, and then the wind picks up and turns the fire directly into your face. And all of a sudden, you can't handle it anymore. What do you have to do? You move away from it because the smoke burns your eyes. All of your senses are overwhelmed by it. What was supposed to be a delight to you has now become an offense to you. That's what God says of the Israelites. You're supposed to be a delight to me, and now it's like you're a smoke in my face. I can't even breathe because of you. It is an overwhelming force of offense to me. This is how God feels about the false repentance, the false religion, the hypocrisy of the Jews in this chapter. He is repulsed. He is frustrated. They produce anguish. They produce annoyance in him. But not only is God angered by their hypocrisy, in these verses we see Isaiah pick up another thread that he is going to weave through the book and now come to a culmination in this prophecy. Verses 6 and 7 read, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities of your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Why? Here's the thing. Because they made offerings on the mountains and they insulted me on the hills, I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Idolatry. Now pop down a couple verses to verse 11, and there you find, But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, pause there for a minute, idolatry. Do you see the particular sin that God is calling out in both Israel's generation that Isaiah is prophesying to and their forefathers' generations? The sin of pagan idolatry. Now you might think that that kind of idolatry is a thing of the past, But it certainly isn't. 
Just the other day, I went to Barnes & Noble, the one just, just over here in uh, Mineola, and as I was walking in, uh, there was a booth at the front of all of these books, these, these specialized books that are new to the store. They, they really want to promote. What are the books they are promoting to you? I don't know if you can read all of those things, but right there you will find 18 different kinds of books about paganism. These books range from Wicca to shamanism, from tarot to auras, from palm reading to chakras. Our society is pagan. Our society is moving more and more in the direction of paganism. What is that if not raw paganism? Some of the very things that the Babylonians did are on display right there on that table. G.K. Chesterton once said, when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. Pagan idolatry is very real. It's very active in our world today. But pagan idolatry can also be easily wrapped up in Christian language and act like Christianity. There are literally over a billion people in the world that call themselves Christians, yet pray to Mary or to dead saints. They venerate statues and collect holy relics. Roman Catholicism is raw paganism. There's a reason why anywhere it goes in the world and it meets another religion, it syncretistically connects with it because paganism is usually fine with paganism. But if I were to simply point the finger at those who dabble in the occult, be it Eastern religions or the Roman Catholic occults, I would be missing the point of the text. In order for me to explain, let me briefly take you forward out of Isaiah for a moment into the days of the exile, into the book of Daniel, and there we find in chapter 5 the downfall of King Belshazzar. Now you're likely very familiar with this chapter. This is just a beautiful and incredible story about how the kingdom switched from Babylon to the Medo-Persian Empire. There what we see is that this, God, Bel, uh, this King Belshazzar was having a great big party. Literally all of the royalty of the kingdom shows up. And there they are celebrating and they are worshiping and they are doing all sorts of things. While outside there is a, an army besieging the walls. But they don't believe that that army is capable of crossing the walls because they believe they are protected because they have the mightiest walls in the history of the world. Here's what it says they were doing the night when that Medo-Persian army conquered them. Verse 4 says, They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. What were they doing? They were worshiping objects. Why did they worship inanimate objects like gold and silver and rocks? Well, this is a uniquely savage depiction of the heart of man, in my opinion. We worship whatever it is that we think will be advantageous to us. We worship whatever we think will provide us with safety and security, whatever will give us ease and happiness. And Belshazzar and his party, they weren't worshiping statues. They weren't worshiping gods in a literal sense. They were worshiping concepts. They were worshiping objects that you find in the ground. They were worshiping earthly materials that God created rather than the God who created them. And for that, they were destroyed. It's when you literally have the finger of God come in and put the writing on the wall. Do you see the similarities between what Belshazzar and his crew were worshiping and the Israelites were worshiping? Look closely at verse 11 again. He says, but you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for what? For fortune. And fill cups of mixed wine for who? For destiny. 
The idols that the Lord is calling out are not idols of gold or silver or stone, but they are not also not idols in the typical sense of Baal or Asherah. They are not idols found in temples or on mountaintops. They are not idols formed of the image of men or beasts. These are idols of the heart. These are desires and passions. God calls Israel to the table for their worship of fortune and destiny. Well, what are those things? Here, the word that is used for fortune is only found two other places in the Bible. Literally, it just means good luck. In other words, they worshiped getting what they wanted, yet when they did get what they wanted, they didn't acknowledge that it came from the gracious hand of God. They didn't turn to him and give thanks. They said, well, that was good luck. When their crops grew well, when their bank accounts were flourishing, when their flocks were multiplying, well, that was good luck. To that, God was greatly offended. Similarly, the other God is named destiny. That's a tricky word to nail down because the meaning is very, this is the only place it's ever used in the Bible, and the meaning of it is used differently in other ancient texts. But basically, it boils down to this. It means that their hands are not worshiping God. They were not trusting God. They were trusting the blind forces of the fates. They were putting their trust not in the God who has promised to do certain things for them, but in the fates, in destiny. They believed that they had a mission to fulfill, and they had a destiny that they decided for themselves. They are the one who choose what they will accomplish. They are the one who choose where they will go and where they will stay. They are going to make their own kingdom of personal wealth and glory rather than doing the work of the Lord. That is what they worshipped. Some idols are really easily spotted in a room like this one. If someone got up in the back in the, in the foyer and started trying to set up a tarot reading table, I think we'd shut that down pretty fast. I think everybody in the room would look at that and, and think, that's messed up. We've got to bring this to a conclusion immediately. Or what if somebody tried to set up a statue of, of Mary or another idol? Well, I think we would see that very quickly and we would tear that down as rapidly as possible. But gods like fortune and destiny, they easily hide in a room like this one. They are incognito often. Or if I could expand it slightly, the idols of comfort and self-gratification and ease and security. These things have the ability to build a moderately large kingdom in your heart before anyone ever even notices that they're there. God's accusation against the Jews in this chapter was much more about what happened in their heart than what happened with their hands. In a similar way, God doesn't look at your outward appearance. He looks at and knows your heart. He knows you in a unique way that no other person, even yourself, could. He knows not only your actions, but he knows the motives behind every one of your actions. And the Israelites, they couldn't hide their sin. They tried. God was not convinced by their outward acts of piety. He wasn't convinced by the gaslighting of their prayers that Bob spoke about last week. Their efforts were a failure of eternal proportions. God is not mocked. Hebrews 4.13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. What was the outcome of Israel's false repentance? Verse 12 tells us, The Lord says, I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen, but you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Judah had just seen 
They had just seen the northern kingdom fall to the Assyrians. They watched them after years of prophets came and told them to turn and repent. And then when they failed to do so, the Assyrians came in and took them over. And they watched it happen. And yet, now, when they are receiving a similar word from the Lord, they still do not turn in repentance. They would be destined for something very similar to the northern kingdom. They would be sent into 70 years of exile in Babylon under the very pagans that we read about in Daniel chapter 5. But in their captivity, there was immense grace for some. Look back up to verse 8. It says, Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, Do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it, so I will do for my servant's sake, and not destroy them all. Sending them into captivity was the merciful option. That was the gracious option. He said, look, for the sake of my promises, I won't wipe them all out. Because I have made promises to bring them back to myself, I will not destroy them all. He did this so that his promise might stand. But there's a worse kind of exile and a worse kind of judgment that is promised for those who reject the Lord even unto death. And as we prepare to examine verses 13 through 16 again, remember those two truths radiating from this chapter. False repentance and false religion result in eternal misery. But true repentance and faith in Christ result in eternal joy. The Bible is filled with a lot of really clear-cut imagery. It's like this dualistic language. Light and darkness, sheep and goats, slaves of righteousness and slaves of sin, life and death, they are completely separate and cannot cross over into one another. Those are lines in the sand and the people are sorted into one category or the other. And listen to the distinction now of how God responds to those who truly repent and to those who do not. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servant shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. You shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death. But his servants he will call by another name. So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. Now this is actually where we're going to stop in the text this morning. I'm going to cover the remainder of the chapter by bringing it together with chapter 66 next week. Because thematically and and, um, textually they fit better together. But to close out our time this morning, what I want to do is I want to make this as resoundingly practical as possible. We're going to close with six questions for you to ask yourself to determine, is your lifestyle an ongoing lifestyle of repentance in the kind of way that brings God joy or brings you judgment? First, have you experienced the gift of initial repentance? This is just another way of asking whether or not you've believed in the gospel, whether or not you've been saved. The Bible teaches that faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. They are the proper response to hearing the gospel that Jesus died to save sinners like you and me. In Luke chapter 13, verse 3, Jesus said, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, 
you will all likewise perish. Repentance is a necessary part of the salvation process. Jesus is the only person who will ever populate heaven that has never repented because Jesus is the only one who has never sinned. If you've never trusted in Christ for salvation and repented of your sin for the first time, this is where the sermon ends for you. If you have not repented, then you are still dead in your sins. You can't grow in the ways that I mentioned later unless you first come to trust Jesus Christ and follow him on the narrow way. If that's you, then I call on you today to look to Jesus. Bow the knee to Christ Jesus. Turn away from your sin and be saved. Friend, if you find yourself in that position today, I want you to talk to somebody before you leave about this. Please know that you can turn to anyone who is around you and ask them a reason for the hope that that is within them. And I will also be around after the service. I would happily share with you more about what it means to truly know Christ. I implore you, if you have never been saved, may today be your day of salvation. The second question, for those who have been redeemed, we need to ask ourselves, do you assume guilt or deep emotion is the same thing as repentance? Look, there are millions of people who have felt genuine sting of conviction. They feel bad about what they did, but they won't be in heaven. Consider Judas. He's an excellent figure for this. He was so emotionally distraught that he purchased a field where he would hang himself That is as premeditated as it gets. Yet his tears and his grief, what did they gain him? Nothing. Guilt can motivate a person to walk an aisle. It can motivate a person to pray a prayer or verbally confess sin. Guilt might even convince you to stop doing something bad. But 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10 reveals to us that there is a kind of grief that is not beneficial but destructive to the human soul. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. That is good repentance. Whereas worldly grief produces death. If you just feel bad but don't truly repent, it still takes you to death. It would be just as good for you if you never felt any remorse. Because both remorse and not feeling remorse without repentance still lead to the same place to death and hell. What is the difference between the two? One aspect of worldly grief is that those who experience that kind of grief assume that the pain itself is the cure. They think, well, since I felt bad about it, that must mean that I am now right with God. Since I cried about doing this thing, I now know that God must see that and must acknowledge that I felt bad and now we are okay. Yes, we should feel bad about our sin. We should even sometimes weep about our sin, but our emotions are not the final stop on our path to repentance. True repentance pushes past emotion and into genuine love for God that causes submission of the heart. Is your repentance genuine, or is it just the occasional bubbling up of emotion? The third question that we should ask ourselves is, do you only repent out of fear of consequences? Now, for those who are listening to the audio, I'm going to be using air quotes in abundance. Do you only repent out of fear of consequences? Many people will repent if they know that they are going to get caught. They will repent. They will say that they are sorry. They will confess. They will acknowledge that they've done something wrong. 
Or once they are caught, then they will speak words that sound good, just like the Israelites did in our text. They don't want to be invaded. They didn't want to go into captivity. So they'll play nice. They'll pretend to be transformed in order to avoid earthly consequences. A true repentance is not just that you stop committing a particular sin. True repentance occurs when your motives for stopping that sin are correct. But how do you know whether your your repentance is genuine or just out of fear? I find that Tim Keller offers a really helpful answer to that question in his book, Counterfeit Gods. It can be really helpful when diagnosing your own heart. He said, fear-based repentance makes us hate ourselves. But joy-based repentance makes us hate the sin. When you feel something about your sin, when you begin to think about it and confess it and you say that you are repenting of it, are you doing so just because you now hate yourself for doing that thing? Or is it because you hate the sin itself? Because you want nothing to do with that thing anymore? Is your repentance or do you only repent in order to get yourself out of consequences? The fourth question we can ask ourselves is, do you only repent generally but not specifically? The healthy Christian is not only one who is not one who is sinless by no means, but it is one who is killing sin. The theological term for that is the mortification of sin. John Owen, in his book, The Mortification of Sin, famously once said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. However, there are many people who could struggle to name a single sin that they have committed in the last six months. They claim to be a Christian. They claim to be a follower of Christ. Uh, but it's impossible for them to actually say one thing that they've fallen short in over the last month. It isn't because the sins are missing. It's due to the fact that they are either ignoring them or they are hiding them. One form of false repentance is the kind of person who says, look, I know I'm a huge sinner. I know I've been saved by grace. I know that I'm a wretch. I'm a worm. Yet they're unwilling to ever actually confess a single thing they've done wrong. They refuse to seek forgiveness for or otherwise acknowledge any specific sin. Proverbs 28, 13 through 14 says, Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Do you only repent generally, but not specifically? The fifth question we can ask ourselves is, do you only speak against sin publicly, but love it in private? The Pharisees were masters at this false form of repentance. They made it as though they had conquered every past sin. They spoke loudly about what is good. They would speak many truths about about scriptural realities that even Jesus himself would say, yes, they're right, that is good, that is true. Yes, listen to what they say, I applaud them, but don't act like them. Matthew chapter 23, one through three says, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, meaning they teach the scripture. But do not do the works that they do, for they preach but they do not practice. Now this is not only true for those who are in positions of teaching and authority and preaching, uh, but it is particularly true of them. It is not exclusively true of them, but it is pointedly at them. So here I am preaching to myself. I'm teaching 
to those who have any involvement in any form of teaching or preaching in the church, if you have any position of authority at all, it's easy to fall into this trap where you begin to think, I can't admit that I'm a sinner because if I admit that, then I lose my credibility. I can't admit that I've fallen short, so I will verbally declare, yes, I believe this is wrong. You must not live this way, but then privately continue on in your life without change. And this is an easy thing for any Christian to fall into, where we speak in this room about how much we hate sin, yet go home and turn on the TV and enjoy it. It's easy for us to go out and love the things that we claim we despise in this room. A truly repentant person is one who looks at their heart and they see that they have to remove this log in their own eye before they go out and take the speck somewhere else. A truly repentant person will see that they cannot proclaim rightly unless they have first removed the sin inwardly. The sixth question that we need to ask ourselves is, do you only repent outwardly of, of outward action, but still harbor sinful desires in your heart? Now this, I think, is the, the, it's the last one, but also the biggest one. It's the most significant one, because this is the one that was primarily the problem in the Israelites in our text today. And if I had to guess, this is the one that is the primary issue in this room this morning. True repentance is accompanied by a powerful distaste for the sin that you once loved. Repentance means turning not just of the actions, but of the heart, away from sin and to Christ. And if it's not to Christ, it's just going to be to another sin. So it must be to Christ and Christ alone. It doesn't mean that you will immediately or instantly have an intense desire against sin and for Christ as you might want. But if you truly repent, there will be at least a glimmer of hatred of that sin. There will be a displeasure in that sin. When it comes back to mind and there's a temptation drawing you towards it, there will also be an element of disgust that continues with it. If there's no hatred for that sin, then there has likely been no real repentance. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 puts it this way. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Obviously, the world is not talking about the people. It's talking about the system that is in opposition to God. Do you love your sin? Do you love the things of this world? Or have you truly repented and has your heart been transformed and changed? Uh, brothers and sisters, we are all sinners. Every one of us in this room, we are all sinners. And there are times when you, just like me, have been a Pharisee. And just like the Jews in Isaiah 65, we have acted hypocritically and we have falsely repented. But there is really good news for people like us. I want you to come back around to where we started. I want to land the plane exactly where we took off this morning. If you still have your Bibles open to Isaiah 65, look back to verse 1. He says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. Do you see the eagerness of God to forgive? That's the default mode of God's heart towards his people. He loves us. He cares for you. The worst thing that you can do is to think that God is out to get you and then hide in your shell, continuing on in your sin without repentance. The Lord is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. If you find yourself caught in sin today, struggling to repent, terrified to be open, afraid to be real before the Lord and the church, know that God is gentle to all who come to him for grace. 
God opposes the proud. Pride is hiding in your sin. Pride is continuing on without repentance or falsely repenting. But if you hear these words, do not harden your heart in the rebellion. He gives grace to the humble. Jesus is a good Savior, and He will not turn you away. So I call on you today, church, let's be a church marked by a lifestyle of repentance whereby we are made more like Jesus every single day. Let's pray. Our God, we ask that you would help us, that you would strip away hypocrisy, that you would strip away rebellion, that you would strip away false repentance, that you would reveal our hearts to ourselves, and that you would help us to reveal our heart to you and to others. We pray, God, that we would no longer hide, we would no longer pretend, that we would not repent falsely, that we would not lie to you. I pray, God, that if there is anyone here who is trapped in sin, who is entangled by all of these things that the world lies about and promises and never satisfies. God, I pray that today they would see the goodness of God our Savior and they would come to a place of true repentance. And God, I thank you that you do restore those who repent truly. And I pray, God, that you would please in this room have a great merciful act of grace that is undeniable in the hearts and the lives of the people that are here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.